Hey guys, and welcome to The One Up Project. We're simplifying all things finance and lifestyle in a relaxed environment. It's all just a bit of fun, so be sure to keep listening and let the content be a catalyst for your own self-improvement. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of The One Up Project podcast. I'm here with Kat Emerson today, Financial Advisor and Head of Marketing and Strategy at Colonel, how are you? Very good. How are you? I'm so good. Um, so you guys might have seen, if you follow the Instagram, you mentioned Colonel a couple of times and I've been catching up with them for a little while now. Um, and I love the Colonel team, so I'm very excited to have Kat on today and it's been a long time coming. Um, so we've got a pretty requested and interesting topic to talk about today, which surrounds having a lump sum of money, but more specifically a house deposit or having a sum of money that you've saved for a house deposit and what we sort of do with that money. Do we keep it in the bank um, and how does that work and how can we really make it work for us? So um, I'm excited to get into it today and I thought Kat maybe first we could start off with you giving us a brief intro of yourself and Colonel and what you're up to at the moment. Cool, cool. So I'm originally from Melbourne. I've been in New Zealand for four years and my background is actually as a financial advisor. So although I do lots of marketing and customer strategy stuff at Colonel, uh, this is, I suppose, the crux of my passion. I love talking about personal finance with people. and the types of clients that I used to work with in Australia were typically millennials and accumulators. So very similar to your audience and the yeah. people listening to this potty. Um, and also, you know, the age group that I'm a part of and my friends. And I really kind of get super passionate about it. Yeah. So very excited to talk about uh, this topic today. I suppose just briefly on Colonel, we are a index fund manager and also an investing platform mostly for long-term wealth, but we can also talk today about how sometimes, you know, funds and index funds in particular can be used for shorter-term goals. And I think a good example of, well, the first thing I think it would be good to sort of cover is Mm. what are some examples of circumstances where people might find themselves with a lump sum of money? Um, Because sometimes I think we can often accumulate money and then like, shit, now we've got this. We've got this. How do I do? Yeah. How did I get here? Yeah, that's a really good question. So... I mean, there's a couple of things that come to mind. I think you always hear of the people that have exceptionally good savings habits and Mm -hmm. have started that from a young age. So people that, you know, when they get their first job, they're consistently saving and then by the time they're sort of in a more professional job and they're, you know, maybe in their mid-20s, they look at their bank account and they've got forty to $50,000, which yeah. is really impressive. So definitely yeah. that's one way. The other way that I wanted to touch on also is that um, – often times and this is I suppose just a fact of life we can be lucky enough to receive an inheritance or a gift of money Um, I think in the day and age that we're in now it's more common if your family is in this type of position to basically do inheritances whilst people are alive so you know it's not uncommon for a grandparent or a family member to want to help out a younger member of their family to either help them get on the property ladder or secure you know some kind of financial security so um, I know for myself that when I first started investing it was you know I had my first professional job and I was like I've got a bit of cash flow so I want to start saving towards something. Didn't really know what that something was. And I did that for a couple of years. And then the next sort of trigger point for me was, well, I did receive an inheritance from my grandma when she passed away. And it wasn't a huge amount of money, but it was enough money for me to pause and think, okay, hold on a second. What am I doing with this? What should I be doing with this? And what are some of the challenges with that? Um, So, yeah, I think they're probably the common ways. I mean, also 
we could say things like win the lottery, but yeah. chances of that happening very slim. We hope. So, yeah, we hope. We live in hope. Um, and so what historically have you seen that people tend to do with lump sums of money mm. like when we save for a house deposit? Because I'd say that that would probably be one of the most common yes. times that we would want to save a large sum of money. Yeah, for sure. So I think traditionally, as most people would know, they just save in a bank account. Um whether by just default most of the time you know that's what we're used to we've got a bank account we want to use that uh, or through I suppose lack of confidence or knowledge of what to do with it otherwise Mm. Um, I certainly know from like friends and family and you know just talking to various clients in the past that that's certainly the most common what the challenge is with that at the moment so I had a little look this morning actually on term deposit rates five-year term deposit rate 1.15 percent for five Mm. years and you know shocking at some point in time probably not well not when either you or I were saving or investing that rate was you know closer to 10 percent and yeah for our parents that worked fine um but realistically particularly if you're looking to invest uh well you're saving to buy a house the property market is increasing and if your savings is essentially going backwards after inflation you know if you're leaving it in a one and a half one percent term deposit or bank account Mm. um you're not you're really doing yourself a disservice and so, sorry, just to cut in yeah. there, what's sort of the general rate of inflation to compare oh, it to? Oh, good idea. So, yeah, good question. So I think we sort of target inflation around 1%, 1.5%. And um, yeah, basically you might sort of see in headlines or in news commentary, your savings is going backwards. And essentially what that means is after the interest rate that you've been paid either on a term deposit or a bank account, then the tax that you invariably have to pay on that income mm. and then factoring inflation, the real purchasing power of your money is going backwards. So being able to buy a $500,000 house today versus a $500,000 house in five years time is going backwards. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah, so your deposit essentially is going to be worth almost less if you're keeping it in the bank yes exactly exactly so I think yeah in in the the common thing would be you know if you ask your parents what should I do how should I save for a house they might say just chuck it in the bank because it's safe and it's what we know but there's a lot of challenges with that right now and I think going forward as well Mm. yeah that's the thing isn't it like people always say well you'll find your parents will always tell you to go for the safest option and so you just do that because you don't want Mm. to risk losing all your oh money. for sure and also I think you know if you're giving advice if, if you put yourself in your parents or a family member's shoes if they're giving you advice they don't want to suggest something to you that might end up in a bad result so mm. you know there's always that level of if totally. they suggested to you to go and invest it in something and then that wasn't the right investment or it didn't work out they'll be feeling pretty crappy about that yeah you're so right and so is, it, is there any other areas where people have gone wrong with their deposits in, in that sense? Um, so like why would keeping it in the bank be a bad idea necessarily? Um, yeah. And what should we be doing with that money? Yeah, so I think um, one of the other areas or things that people can do wrong other than doing nothing with it is looking for kind of crazy or whiz-bang ideas. So right. being lured in by, you know, a particular investment scheme or something that might be offering them 10% and they don't fully understand what it is um, or, you know, almost taking on too much risk because they don't quite know what their time frame is. And mm. I think that's a really important point because speaking from like going through this experience and working with lots of, you know, younger clients myself, um, 
we often don't really know when we're going to be able to buy a house. So true. So although you might have this idea in mind, so if I think of myself, I was saving um, mainly for my future, but knowing at some point in time, I probably want to use this money for a house. I don't know when or what that looks like. And then I received a small amount of inheritance. And at that point in time, it paused me to like pause and just say, okay, maybe now I can actually kind of do some rough numbers and see exactly when I can get to the deposit I need for a house I want to buy. Um, But even then, from that point on, I still didn't end up buying a house for probably another three, four years. And at the point at which I did, I did so with my now husband. So Mm. lots of things had changed in that time frame from when I first started saving for what was this house deposit in the future. Um, So I think when you are looking for an alternate to a bank account, it's somewhat well, sometimes really challenging because you don't know when you're going to need the money and you don't know how much the money needs to be. Yeah. And so do you think it's important in that sense to make sure we work out our risk profile and like kind of our timeline? Yeah. I guess it's quite hard to do, but sort of get a general idea, excuse me, a general idea of what our timeline is like. Yeah, I I think so. So what I would suggest is get a general idea of like your minimum and your maximum timeline. Right. So what is the minimum time frame that you think that, you know, is the point at which you can actually start going to open homes? Right. Mm. So that's what we're talking about. And you might have a rough sense of that. So if you're just starting out um, and you're building towards a lump sum, you could kind of say, okay, well, roughly speaking, I want to buy a house in this kind of area. This is what the market value is. And this is kind of my minimum amount that I'd need. And Mm. I might you know, it might take me five years to get there kind of as a minimum. Lots of things could happen in the next five years to bring that time frame down. But if you've got an idea of the minimum, then I think that can certainly help start you in the right direction. So, okay. you know, for me as an example, again, when we, um, I first started investing, I was like, okay, I think this is a 10 year prospect because I started investing when I was about 23 and I'm like, well, I don't really see how I'm going to buy this house just by myself or don't know how mm. that's going to work. And so originally... I chose quite a high growth investment option through an index fund um, and knew that I sort of had at least a seven to 10 year time frame. As things started to change and I could see that that time frame was becoming a little bit shorter. So after I'd received the inheritance and I knew then that, okay, this is still probably a little bit shorter, might be more like five to seven years as opposed to 10 years. that's when I started to make some changes to the investments that I was using to basically make them a little bit more conservative or a little bit more balanced, Mm -hmm. um, knowing that that timeframe was coming sooner. Okay, cool. And so just to summarize what we're sort of talking about here, you're saying that the, well, one of the best options with, to do with our money would be to put it into investments and to make sure it's Mm. the right investment for us. So how do we do this, I suppose, and make sure that we're diversifying correctly to remove large amounts of risk Like we spoke about, I guess, like working out the timeline in a sense, but how else would we do that? Yeah. So I think the number one thing with risk and investing and diversification is spreading that money across lots of different companies or lots of different investments Mm -hmm. and you don't need to overcomplicate it but you do need to have that level of diversification so someone asked me this week actually well with an index fund as an example we were looking at the nz20 fund um and they were like well what is the risk that i lose all of my capital like you know they had very little experience investing and they were moving their money from you know a savings account Mm -hmm. or a term deposit and looking to invest and they said well what is the risk if I have that money in the bank, I know that it's safe, but what is the risk of me losing everything? 
And quite simply, the risk that you lose everything is that every single one of those companies in the top 20 fund go bankrupt. Mm. That's what would have to happen for your capital to be zero. If the 20 largest companies in New Zealand went bankrupt, we sure as shit have like other problems Some to issues. worry about. Yeah. yeah, so I don't think you're going to be worrying about what your yeah. house deposit looks like. Um, so I think that's kind of what we talk about in terms of when you're choosing an index fund or a managed fund that has you know a lot of diversification across different companies and different sectors of the economy. Mm-hmm. That's what you're playing on, as opposed to saying I'm going to invest in these you know, one or two or three companies that I really like, it's a lot more risk because if one of those companies has, you know, whether it's bankruptcy is quite extreme, but even if they have a downturn, that's a third of your money, Mm. you know, that's subject to that. So, yeah, yeah, that's why we say look at a fund, look at an investment fund, you know, an index fund is really good for someone that has transitioned from a bank account or term deposit because typically they're much lower cost, they are well diversified and it's a little bit of a smoother ride. And so you would say putting that entire lump sum, say we had like 10K into one fund? Yeah, so I, yeah, yes and no. Um, It's really... It's easy for people to want to overcomplicate it. So mm. what we would typically say for, yeah, someone with, you know, say between zero and $25,000 is you don't really need to overcomplicate it. We actually had when I used to, was advising in Melbourne um, for any amounts less than $50,000, we would typically put in some kind of diversified fund, maybe between one and two funds. Okay. And then that was it. Okay. You know, it's really once you start to get between 50 and 100K and 100K plus that you need to think about things like portfolio construction. If you've got $10,000, don't stress about that. Yeah. You know, just pick a well-diversified fund that covers, you know, a whole sector of the market. So you're looking at, say, like a Global 100 or an S&P 500 or an NZ20 um, and keeping in mind whether you want to be invested, I think, in New Zealand or the rest of the world is probably the main decision you need to think about. Yeah, I think that's so key, that part there, because it can be so easy to overcomplicate it and think... Because, I mean, in an investing sense, anything under 50K isn't necessarily a large amount, I suppose. But then to the individual, it might feel like their entire life. So it's quite hard to know what to do and where to put it. So I think it's really, really helpful. Um, And so moving on, do we take this money out as soon as we need it? People always talk about like time in the market and you can't time the market and it's time in the market, blah, blah. But for a house, do we need to wait? for the right time to take that money out of our investments and how do we identify that? Yeah, that's, that is super hard. So the right time to take it out is in anticipation of when you need it. Okay. And I think the trouble that people run into with um, investing for a house deposit and what we often say is you want to have a flexible time frame. So uh, in New Zealand, there is a period of time, I think it's between five and six years, that as long as you'd stayed invested for at least five to six years, you never would have uh, returned less than your original capital. So that's why we kind of say, if you're looking at investing in equity markets, you need a time frame of at least five to six years. Now, right, okay. over the course of, say, that first five years, there are chances that you get to year two and it's been two really great years in the markets and mm. the economy and it's doing really well and you might think, okay, I've done really well, probably better than I expected. Maybe I'm sooner towards my goal, so I want to take it out now or I want to take half of it out now and kind of de-risk at that point in time. Mm. 
On the flip side of that, let's say you get to year four and you're thinking, oh gosh, we're in a little bit of a downturn or we hit a year like 2020. Um, Wow, my deposit's down 20%. What mostly happens in that situation is people say, it's okay, I don't need to buy a house for another year. I'm okay to wait, you know, a little bit extra just to ride out that market movement. Um, so I think it's having a bit of a flexible time frame. But if you know, if something changes in your situation and you know we're going to start looking or I'm going to start looking at properties and actually going to open homes, mm. you do the minute you've made that decision, you need to basically put the money in cash yeah. or at least like significantly de-risk it. Um, you don't want to do that too soon. I have seen people that... Uh, particularly, you know, moving from other countries, have moved from Melbourne back to New Zealand and thought, great, going to arrive here and buy a house. It'll be really easy. Sold all of their investments in anticipation of that. And then it's taken them two years to find a house. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's it's finding that balance and just knowing with yourself. But once you've made a decision and you've committed, you don't want to be risking that money to any, you know, essentially market movements that are totally out of your control yeah exactly right and something a lot of people will ask me about is people always say go and talk to professional go and find some trusted resources what who are those people and what are those resources that we can seek out yeah so that is a really good question and I think it's a challenging space for people that we would typically call the accumulators so someone that's you know building up their wealth or accumulating their wealth towards a goal Mm. um the first sort of professional people would say is, you know, go and see a financial advisor. The sad reality of New Zealand is that most financial advisors would not deal with accumulator clients because of the way that the industry works and that they are more focused on, you know, sort of wealth development and the other end of the spectrum, which is retirement. So, um, that's where, you know, there's some really great companies out there. I would say Colonel included because this is something that we're super passionate about is trying to get resources and information out there to people so that they don't necessarily have to go see an advisor. Mm. Um, if you're looking towards property specifically, I think, you know, it's definitely worthwhile talking to a broker and definitely worthwhile talking to an accountant, particularly if you're buying it with, you know, a partner and you're not yet married or you don't want to be married like there are a lot of things you need to consider around relationship property and those sorts of considerations. Um, Also, you know, protecting yourself if you're making a significant contribution to the property or, you know, one person is making a significant contribution to the property. How does that work out? Being really upfront with, you know, your significant other on Mm. that. um, That can be hard. And I think in those instances, it's always easier to have an independent third party to help facilitate those conversations yeah so yeah i definitely think you know broker is a first point in the home deposit space because they will be able to give you the best indication of what you can afford and how close you are to that goal considering an accountant if you're at the stage of saving towards the goal on looking to invest you know checking out some of the resources on the likes of kernel and hatch um obviously podcasts there's a lot of great information out there and you know the sorted website has some really good stuff in terms of you know assessing your risk and your level of comfort and um, yeah time horizons yeah cool so for home deposits we want to make sure we're seeing a mortgage advisor or broker pretty much as soon as we can I suppose to yeah yeah that's awesome because I think I, I said to someone the other day I'm like the benefit of seeking advice from a professional in that space is they will give you an honest answer yeah and sometimes having 
seen this a hundred times over and also knowing personally we are super ambitious us Mm. millennials we love to think that we can achieve everything which we can but ultimately (laughs) there comes a time where we probably have to make a compromise and I think that's particularly relevant in the property space because for a lot of people the reality is is that your first home is not your dream home and there's going to have to be some level of compromise whether it's you know the area or whether you buy it with someone else or you know delay the time frame all that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. and having someone else give you that information totally unbiased really helps yeah definitely and I think something else about um this younger generation is a lot of the time we want all of it now but kind of without doing the the full research or being a bit practice I think sometimes it is actually about going out and seeking those resources you might hear us refer to say the sorted website a thousand times but that actually means going on the sorted website and doing that research for yourself um, absolutely and just getting I guess like a wide range of opinions and so you can make up your own mind about your own situation Uh, and can you give us any practical examples of how we could be benefiting more by investing our money versus keeping it in a Mm. safe secure interest bearing account yes (laughs) yes very true so okay so I guess this morning I had a quick look at those term deposits. So let's say a five-year term deposit right now, you're getting about 1.1%. Um, looking at the NZ20, the five-year return on that index is just over 18%. And if you're looking at Global 100, it's 12.8%. Now, of course, we know that you cannot rely on past performance. However, the point of investing in equity markets is that everyone believes the future of our economy and the future of the world is going to grow. Mm. That's why you invest in companies exactly. because we see a better future. Where we're at with interest rates is that's very unlikely to change for some time due yeah. to you know how the governments use monetary policy and where we're at you know post COVID and coming out of um, you know basically what is technically a recession. So the other thing I think to think about is. Everyone hears in the news headlines and somewhat panics about the fact that, you know, the Auckland market or the property market's gone up between 7 and 10% this year. And, you know, we've just hit, I know, I read yesterday, um, median house prices in New Zealand have just hit 750,000. Mm. And if you're in the Auckland region, it's between 790 and 1.2 million based on which part of Auckland that you're looking at. So if you put that in perspective, you really need that you know, 10 to 15% that you might get from investing in equities. Now you're not going to necessarily get that every year and that's where you need to be flexible, but that the opportunity cost of leaving your money in the bank is huge. Yeah. And regardless of that rate was to decrease slightly from the 12 or the 18 we're talking about, it would, it would still be more than 1.5% oh, or whatever. Absolutely. The banks and, are up and I think the other thing, like from, from speaking from experience, There is nothing worse than saving towards a goal that you really want to achieve and feeling like you're getting nowhere. And Mm. I think that's often the experience when you're just watching your money pile up in the bank. Um, Because the other thing that sometimes people miss out on is it's really your contributions over that period of time that are going to have the biggest impact. Mm. Like, yes, your returns are important, but it's what you're contributing to that. And I think that that's also the benefit of investing that money is it's this kind of self-fulfilling cycle of you invest it, you see it doing well mm. or doing better than what it would in a bank account. You feel a bit more inspired by that and you continue exactly going. Exactly right. That's so true. And so in your opinion, and I think I know what the answer is here, <laughs> do you believe that there is a place for interest earning bank accounts in the current climate? Or do you think we should just not bother with that at all in terms of saving? That is a great question. So there are definitely places for them. Um, It's really for short-term goals and for your emergency account. Outside of that, no. 
Okay. You know, you, yeah. For, for anyone, I think when it comes to short term goals, it's, it's money that you know you have to spend on something. Like if mm. you have a car and you know my like bomb of a car that I bought when I was 16 or 17 <laughs> is going to die soon, you know, you might want to keep five to 10 grand in a bank account so that you can buy one when that happens. Mm. Um, but outside of that, if it's a future goal, definitely get investing. Okay, cool. And then leading on from that, in that time between when we're building up an amount of money and then getting to that lump sum, what are we doing with those small amounts of cash? Do we just, I suppose, deposit them straight into our investments? Yeah, yeah, 100%. You want to set up something that's really easy and the least amount of work for you, I mm. think. So um, this is also one part, well, an area where people can trip themselves up. So don't start too ambitious, you know, don't start saving towards or setting up a regular payment or an automatic, you know, an auto invest to something that you're not quite sure you can afford because okay. the worst yeah. outcome is that you set it at a level that's too high, you find it a little bit unachievable and then you stop entirely. So um, what we would typically say is, you know, figure out roughly speaking, you can do it on a back of an envelope type situation, kind of what you need to spend and what you think you can save. Mm. Start at that level, see how you go for a couple of months. You're going to know pretty quickly whether you're living paycheck to paycheck because your savings goal is too much. Yeah. Um, And yeah, but definitely the more you can regularly invest that, the better. Mm. And I think some people might find that there are barriers in making the jump to invest. So is there a certain amount of money that is considered big enough to be a lump sum or could we start with zero dollars mm. and just start investing straight away? Totally start with zero dollars. Mm. Yeah. I, the, the one caveat to that that I would say is you do need to be aware of whatever the costs are to buy into that investment depending yeah. on what structure you choose. So that's why looking at something like an unlisted index fund is great because typically there won't be any transaction costs to regularly invest. If you are, say, using an ETF or um, you know other types of platforms, you might have to pay for brokerage. Mm. In the long run, though, as long as, you know, the costs are reasonable, you still just want to be regularly investing. Yeah. Okay. So looking into fees with our investing platforms is an important yeah. thing to... Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah. cool. And is there a difference in how we should treat the money depending on how we've received it? Mm. This is a really hard one because the answer should be no, but in my experience, it's often yes, because... Mm. Depending on where money has come from, you will have some kind of emotional connection to it, right? So it can be really hard in the instance where money has come from an inheritance or a gift from someone that you do 100% what you want to do with it without that you know your experience of that relationship with those people influencing what has happened. Um, So we've seen this a lot where you know people will be gifted money or have inherited money and it'll come into their bank account and they will basically treat it entirely separate to everything else and you know for right or wrong they might have debt but they refuse to pay off that debt with that money because it's money for their future mm. now that's not 100 percent a lot like logical if you look at the numbers but it's something to be aware of and i think also you know if you are in a position where you find yourself receiving money from someone that has an emotional connection if you have the option to have a chat to them about it you know bring them on the journey of what it is that you're actually saving for with your own money so that then they can support you with that yeah yeah totally and kind of just a side note that I want to touch on in terms of when we're looking at our lump sums of money and trying to decide what we're doing with it mm-hmm. are the options are are the options bank account versus investing or are there other things that we should be looking at as well oh good question um 
Okay. Well, actually, the one that we haven't talked about is a bank account versus investing assumes that you have no high interest debt or Mm. personal debt. So that is definitely something to consider first. If you have, you know, again, it's that illogical mindset of if you have $20,000 sitting in your bank account, but you have $10,000 on your credit card, you should pay off your credit card. Mm. You know, sometimes people struggle with that because they don't like to see their savings decrease. Yeah. But the numbers tell you that that's what you should do. So that's definitely a consideration first. Um, yeah. I think yeah. a common one that I see in my friends and other people is they will um, have an overdraft that was currently in- – that was interest-free and then suddenly it's any interest, but then they're saving or investing um, – to the side of that and I feel like I've always been of the opinion that you would you should get rid of that overdraft before going on to invest or save is that would that be correct yes yeah that that is definitely yeah definitely correct so I think the kind of simple steps that I think you should just run through are do I have any debt and do I need to pay that off that's my first focus talking about personal debt yeah um you know credit cards overdraft that sort of thing personal loan Mm -hmm. ignore your student loan yeah (laughs) do I have an emergency account yes no if it's no figure out roughly what you need to save towards that once you've ticked those two boxes okay what can I invest in Mm. to start working towards my goals okay you know outside of my bank account so an example of a debt that we shouldn't care about paying off before we um go into investing is a student debt is there any other yeah. debts like that's that? a little bit controversial but yeah i totally i agree like, but yeah. <laughs> opinion but <laughs> i know um any other debts yeah so probably i mean i'm thinking of other situations you might have loans from family um mm-hmm. that could be flexible it's really it's really those debts that you're paying you know high interest on so okay. you're paying more than sort of four percent interest on mm. so yeah credit cards personal loan overdraft um car loans those sorts of things you want to get rid Perfect. of those okay cool yep. i'm really glad we clarified that for the people out there yeah. and so lastly what are the most important things to remember when we're making decisions on what to do with our money yeah so the number one starting point is what you're trying to achieve so what is your goal what is it that you want to do um and roughly when do you want to get there once you know those two things, you can start playing with the idea of, okay, well, how much is it going to be to, you know, achieve that goal? Some things are really easy. If your goal is as simple as, you know, I want to buy this car at this point in time, that's a known amount. Mm. Or, you know, I want to save for my OE or go work overseas for two years. I know that I need to save a lump sum of this amount. Um, a little bit harder when you're talking about property to necessarily know what that amount is, but that would be the starting point. And then once you know, the goal, your amount and your rough time frame and or your minimum time frame to get there, mm. that's when you can consider investing and, you know, actually setting up some steps in place. So is it a lump sum that you're investing now and is that, you know, invested and then set and forget for the next five years? Or are you doing that through regular contributions in line with your pay? Okay, perfect. That's awesome. I think that covers off everything I wanted to talk about. And I'm really glad that we went over so many of those things because that's answered a lot of questions for my personal awesome. situation. <laughs> so thank you so much for being here, Kat. I really appreciate your time. No worries. Thanks, Sarah. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you were able to take something valuable away. Um, be sure to subscribe and keep up with the socials for further episodes at The One Up Project. And I'll catch you on the next one.